I'm really pleased to welcome you to this Zoomnar on mergers in the time of coronavirus and beyond. We'll, we'll be talking about um, various issues um, in relation to mergers in the professional services sector, ranging from um, the reasons for, for mergers and why firms merge to how to form a, a strategy and business plan, including a merger, to how to prepare for a merger and how to actually make a merger successful. I'm really pleased to have with me a, a fantastic panel of speakers. First of all, we have Rob Millard, of, a director of Cambridge Strategy Group. Um, Rob is a management consultant to professional services firms. Um, and we're very fortunate that he is currently finishing up his um, PhD thesis on mergers in the legal services sector. So we are going to have some advanced advanced highlights about his research and the findings that he's he's come up with under that so um, we look forward to hearing about that um, and then we have Helen Goatley and Ed Whittington um, respectively chair and managing partner of newly merged law firm Moore Barlow LLP. Moore Barlow was created on the 1st of May of this year so at the height of lockdown um, it was a merger between two firms previously called Barlow Robbins of which um, Helen was chair, and more Blatch LLP, which, of which um, Ed was previously managing partner. So it's great to have them both here to see, to hear their perspectives from both sides of the merger table. The merge firm has 70 equity partners, 500 people, and a turnover of about £38 million with offices in, in the City of London, Richmond, Woking. More Barlow is uh, the, the newly merged firm is focused on delivering legal services to support people, families and people-led organisations and businesses. And we look forward to hearing more about how Helen and Ed um, led both sides of their um, respective firms in, into that merger and how that's working out. So it's, we're really fortunate to have a real live case study to hear about. Uh, and then we have my partner, Sarah Chilton, who is a specialist in partnership and employment law and leads our contentious partnership practice here at CM Murray um, and focuses on advising both law firms, other profession, professional firms and individual partners on partnership disputes, discrimination, whistleblowing issues. Um, and lastly, we have a last minute addition to the panel, um, a very welcome addition. Pia Sanchez, who, who joined us very recently, and Pia is a senior counsel specialising in employment and partnership law. Um, and those of you who don't know me, my name is Zilon Begum. I'm uh, a partner at CM Murray. I head the non-contentious partnership practice of the firm, and I specialise in advising law firms and partners on various partnership issues, including mergers, and I've worked on a number of professional firm mergers over my career. Um, so without any further ado, um, we will um, go to our first speaker, Rob Millard. Um, Rob, it would be great to hear more about your research on, uh, on mergers and especially um, the reasons that you found that firms typically merge for um, or should merge for. Thank, thanks, Ulan. Uh, well, yes, uh, so I, I looked at uh, research not only in law firms to begin with, but research in general. And what was clear from that is that mergers occur in waves. And, and there's a massive research about this that uh, they, they're triggered by regulatory regime changes or technological regime changes. 
uh, or economic shocks. And uh, right now, uh, certainly we uh, exacerbated by the coronavirus, we have all three. So, so I, I do strongly uh, suspect that next year, particularly, we will see another merger wave because the mergers don't tend to happen at the time of the economic shock. They happen just after that as, as the, uh, the impacts uh, manifest themselves in the firm. Um, they, they, they're a tough thing to do, mergers. It's not something to undertake lightly. I mean, they, they're massively disruptive. They, they're expensive, especially if you've got lease consider things that you, uh, that you have to walk away from. They, they, they tend to, to cause a, um, a, a shift of focus away from the client, and, and clients don't like that. Uh, you're inevitably going to lose a few clients because of conflicts, and, uh, and, and, and along with that, you may lose some of the partners that you'd really rather not lose. Uh, on the other hand, it's an opportunity to, to shift out partners that are, are, are not aligned with the, uh, what the, the combined firm is trying to achieve and sometimes not aligned with the old firm either. Uh, and that really, I, I guess, brings me to, to what you, why you would merge. And, and that is because you have a carefully considered strategy that is going to deliver competitive advantage and you're confident that that strategy is a strong one and it calls for a merger. I think a merger is what you do if you can't uh, achieve your growth by, uh, in, within the time frame necessary by any other way. Uh, and getting down to the specifics, that might mean that you want to deepen your core capabilities. It might mean that you want to diversify your capabilities, that you want to project into a new market. Uh, if you're a really large firm, it may be that you want to move internationally, that you even want to become a global firm. And, and what's interesting is that uh, as recently as, as 20 years ago, there weren't global firms. So they didn't exist. Uh, they, so, so these large law firm mergers that we're seeing are, are a very recent phenomenon. You may want to overcome internal issues that you can't, uh, you, you can't fix any other way. And we often see this with, with, with founder, uh, 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 firms that are led by a very strong founder generation that is wanting to retire and they haven't attended to succession planning. Um, sometimes that's the only way of, of saving that firm. Um, you could have an unfunded uh, pension plan. There are all sorts of reasons uh, for, for that. Uh, you could just have a deteriorating uh, financial position um, uh, generally, and uh, which forces you into a defensive merger. Or you may see a firm that's in, in, in distress and think that that's an opportunity, although um, I would caution that it's probably better to, to laterally hire talent out of a firm like that. Uh, rather than merge unless you've got a very clear view of how you're going to fix the issues within that firm. Um, just a reaction to market consolidation. Firms tend to panic if they see a big uh, a competitor merging with another competitor and, oh my goodness, what's that done to our market position? Um, and uh, there's economies of scale. It's a little bit controversial. Many people say there are no economies to, of scale to be had in law firm mergers. Well, I, I disagree. Clearly, there are. Um, and it goes beyond just having you know, one CMO instead of two CMOs. It's, uh, it, it, it's the, the critical mass that you need in order to be able to deliver a, a well-rounded service to clients, I, I think, has grown over the past few years. Thanks, Rob. So going on to our real-life um, case study that we have, Helen and Ed, um, it'd be interesting to hear what your key reasons were for merging. Um, and how did you go about finding each other as the as being the ideal merger partners? Shall I go first, Ed? Um, well, you, you, you approached us, so I think it's only right that you go first. Yeah. <laughs> so 
at um, Barlow Robbins, um, we had um, for some time um, been going towards our ultimate goal, which was to be recognised um, for our relationship-based services, um, uh, dealing with high net worth clients, um, uh, owner-managed businesses, and so on. And, and in Surrey, we were well positioned for that market. But um, what we had found is that we had um, invested in infrastructure, we had invested in the quality of our service, um, and we kept being told that our infrastructure would carry a much bigger business. But we weren't a bigger business, and we had tried over years to become a bigger business by organic growth, and it just wasn't, to echo what Robert's just said, it wasn't happening fast enough. And we became increasingly aware that we needed to, um, well, we were facing competition for our top talent. We couldn't provide the career structure that bigger firms could provide. Um, so we knew we needed to grow. Um, so we strategically decided that we would seek out a merger partner um, that would not nonetheless take us out of our core uh, market. Um, so we set about uh, the whole thing quite strategically, quite methodically, worked out as far as we were concerned what our strengths were, and what we could offer, um, as well as uh, what we were seeking. And then we started to look at, at various different options, which led to um, the first meeting with Ed. So, Ed, do you want to take over the story at that point? Yeah, uh, and just offer the, the perspective of more Blatch, which was that we had grown out of the New Forest into Southampton uh, and around the Solent and then in London, uh, thanks to the uh, my predecessor and he'd long held an ambition to um, fill in the gap between London and, and, and Hampshire and indeed I think had had discussions with Barlow Robbins about a decade ago and uh, I, th I think uh, my predecessor had multiple attempts at mergers using that sort of methodical approach um, of, of identifying possible partners holding talks, but they would always collapse. Uh, and uh, by, by the stage I took over, which was only about two and a half years ago, we were in fact at a stage where we wanted to consolidate and improve our infrastructure because in, in um, stark contrast to Barlow Robbins, we'd achieved growth, but not serious infrastructure improvement. So I was focused on infrastructure and the fact that I was approached by a firm in Surrey where we'd had this long held ambition to fill the gap between London and Southampton. And that firm had invested in infrastructure. It, it laid out too many complementary assets to just ignore. So there was an opportunistic element from by, by me, um, but for frankly compelling reasons. Um, so I hope that helps sort of build, build a picture for everyone. And Helen, you, you mentioned that you approached um, more Blatch. How did you identify more Blatch as being a potential merger? Um, I think it's because we were we both firms were fishing in the same pool uh, for talent in the high net high net worth private client arena. 
and we realized we were competing for the same candidates um, and, and that led on to a realization that that we were very very much focused on exactly the same markets just in slightly different geographies it's interesting ed that and helen you both say you found it difficult to recruit make laterals and bolt-ons um rob do you have any comment on that as to the option between growing through bolt-on acquisitions of teams and lateral hires versus doing a merger well, it, it comes back to what I said earlier about uh, the, the level of disruption and expense and, and that involved with the merger. I think if you can achieve the objective that you, you, you're after with a lateral hire or team hire, uh, that is almost always better than a merger. Uh, but sometimes it's not enough and then, then, the, then a merger becomes a real possibility. And then it's a matter of, well, we're going to talk a bit later on about how to execute properly. But uh, yeah, so, so it's what you do if, you, if a lateral hire or a team hire is not going to be enough. Um, Rob mentioned earlier about succession issues being one of the big push factors for certainly smaller founder-led businesses looking for mergers. Um, Sarah, be, I know you advised quite a few firms previously on succession planning um, can you tell us a bit, a little bit about how firms get to this stage and how they could avoid getting to this stage where they're kind of forced into looking for some exit strategy because they can't pass the business on to a new generation? Yeah, I think the clue is in the title and it's really in the planning. And I think a lot of uh, people find themselves in a position whereby they've almost left it all a little bit too late. And actually succession planning should be something that's done over such a long period of time. Um, and whether that's because you're trying to uh, plan succession from an internal pool or whether that's because you need to go out to the market and hire laterally, um, or whether that's even at partner or associate level to identify a sort of talent pipeline of people that are able to come through and to replace those partners who are due to be leaving. And so it's really about kind of early planning. And part of that is because it takes time to actually put in place the, the right people. Part of that is that even once you have those right people in place, they need time to bed in and to learn from the people that run the business. You know, they might not want to run it the same way when they eventually take over, but they still need time to kind of learn the business and work in the business, particularly if they're um, coming in laterally. Um, so I think, you know, really forward planning, and we're not talking about a few years, we're talking much longer than that. Um, and I think another thing firms need to be mindful of is identifying key gaps in their uh, possible succession. So sort of looking ahead and mapping out what their business is going to look like 10 years down the line, for example, and identifying, you know, there might be key gaps in their service offering. You know, there might be one particular partner who offers a particular service who they know might be due to leave. Um, and it's looking at that and making sure you can plug those gaps. But I think the other thing that firms are really reluctant to do is to talk to partners about their plans for retirement. And that's for obvious reasons, because if you do that uh, the wrong way, then you do expose yourself to potential age discrimination claims. But it is something that you can do lawfully, or, or you can at least potentially, the concept of age discrimination allows you to objectively justify. So you might on the face of it discriminate against a partner by say bringing up conversation or suggesting some sort of retirement. But if you can objectively justify that, um, then it may not be ultimately finding a finding of discrimination against you. So I think firms need to really think about that and not shy away from having those difficult conversations with partners to try and find out 
when they are going to leave. Because one of the problems that we see more often is that it, it's actually not that people are pushing people out. It's actually that partners are leaving and the firms didn't realise that they were about to go. And then they're left with not enough time to sort of fill that gap and to replace that practice. So I think, you know, forward planning, but also taking some decisive action and, and trying to understand what's actually going to go on in your business is really important. Yeah. And obviously the consequences of not getting that right, whether that's succession, if you, uh, if you can't achieve succession, then finding uh, the, the right merger partner at the right time, the consequences of, of those things not happening are quite severe in terms of costs of winding up a business, for example, yeah. PI runoff cover, cost of redundancy, um, storing files for at least six years and you know winding up your leases all of those have a significant cost in winding up a business and that's not something founders or you know partners of, of the small firm want to be stuck with no and it's not something that's going to best serve the clients either the, the clients will benefit from at least the option of continuity in some way shape or form um, rather than just sort of an abrupt halt and being forced to go and find alternative representation or, or advice elsewhere so moving on to um, advanced planning um, for a merger, obviously this is particularly relevant to those firms who think about um, mergers in advance and may not be so relevant to those firms who might be pushed into a merger, particularly for, for example, for financial difficulties. Um, but there are lots of mergers out there and firms looking for mergers who are doing it um, as a strategic imperative rather than because of um, financial difficulties. Um, in terms of um, what you did, Helen and Ed, um, to prepare for a merger, did you actually factor that into your business plan and strategy in advance um, or did, did it just happen organically uh, and you took it forward from there? Okay, from our perspective, um, we very much factored it in. We had a, our annual partners conference, I think, which took place uh, some three years before we achieved this merger, uh, where we decided this was actually going to be our goal and, and we gave ourselves until 2023 to achieve it. Um, and uh, we then, I think fairly unusually, decided that we would share that determination to become considerably larger by merger uh, with all our staff. So um, we rolled that out to everybody so that they knew uh, that this would be going on in the background and hopefully that would not um, therefore sort of upset them if they heard rumours, um, which turned out to be a very good thing um, over the years that ensued. Um, because if they did hear rumours, they shrugged it off and thought, well, yes, that's all in accordance with the strategy. Um, so that was quite helpful. And I suppose from our point of view, um, I've already explained that it, there was an opportunistic element to the situation with Barla Robbins specifically. Um, but More Blatch had, had been a firm that had grown over a long period of time. So it, it although it wasn't in the strategy last year um it it had been before um so there's probably always got to be one party that is you know hasn't had 
uh, done it in the way that Barlow Robbins had done. Um, and we were that one, but we were, we were willing to be opportunistic. And our, and our staff and partners were used to lateral hires, acquisitions and mergers, of which we've done many over a, over a decade, but not one, not, not one this big. Um, Rob, so when you're advising firms on the considering mergers, um, what would you advise them to consider when formulating their merger strategy if they want to formulate one? Well, the merger strategy uh, is, is clearly part of the overall strategy. It goes back to what I said earlier about having a very clear idea about what it is that you want to achieve as a firm and then what part a merger needs to play in that. And I think we've heard from, from Helen and Ed uh, a really good example about where they identified a, a very clear synergies and underutilized infrastructure that could support a larger organization. Uh, and, and so they built a, a, a strategy around uh, exploiting that and, and uh, a beautiful example. Uh, the other question is, how easy is it going to be to integrate these two businesses? I mean, and, and clearly the, the relatedness of the two firms becomes an issue. It's, it's just a lot more difficult to, 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 to combine two businesses that are governed in radically different ways or structured in radically different ways or where the levels of profitability are very different. Uh, and, and if we look at uh, some of the international mergers, they, they, the Varine structures, for instance, are, are used sometimes to kick that can down the road, uh, but you can only kick cans so far, and, and, and then you need to, to, to confront those differences. So uh, it, it, it would be looking at how related the businesses are from a structural and a system and process perspective, and also a cultural perspective. How, can these people work together to, to build a bigger firm uh, that, that is better, you know, that, that, that delivers one plus one equals three? And in terms of things that firms can do in advance, if, if a firm knows that in the future they, they'd like to merge or they are actively looking for a merger, Sarah, what, what are the kind of housekeeping things that firms should be doing at that point to ensure that they're merger ready? I think reviewing their LLP agreements to think about what impediments there might be to a merger. So, for example, things like, um, you know, how widely they need to share their merger plans and thoughts with the partners. Now, it's always, I think, a good idea to have as many people on board as possible, but that needs to be balanced against the need for confidentiality. And we've all heard of the mergers that were going to happen that then didn't happen. Um, and part of that uh, reason that we all know about it is because they were leaked by some people that were in the discussions. So I think there is, a, you know, and I've, I've known of mergers where only sort of two or three partners in large, large firms knew that there was even merger talks going on. And that was born out of a desire for confidentiality. But I do think that has to be balanced against the fact that if you if people don't know what's coming and then you hit them with it quite far down the line, then often you won't get their buy-in. So I think just thinking about, you know, which one of those is going to work for you? You know, do you want to value confidentiality and, and keeping that like loop of people that know really, really small? Or do you value kind of getting wider partner buy-in earlier on? And I think uh, once you know which one of those things might be best for you, making sure that your LLP agreement supports that. So, um, you know, do you have to discuss these decisions amongst the entire partnership or do you have the ability to keep those decisions amongst the management board, for example. So I think making sure you've got that, making sure you've got the ability to pass through a merger um, as well. Uh, and then things like restricted covenants and, and what potential restrictions do you have in place already in your LLP and how might they translate 
into a merger and just thinking about the risk um, that partners who find out about the merger and don't want to go ahead with it might try and leave pre-merger and really thinking about whether you need anything in your LLP agreement to better protect your business to stop those partners taking business or taking associates with them which could impact the ability for you to merge or the terms in which you're able to do that. Thanks Sarah. I mean the other couple of things I'd mention on, on the constitutional side is um, also ensuring you have the right delegated authorities to the, the right committees that are pushing through um, and negotiating the merger in the agreement uh, um, for on behalf of the firm. Um, quite often you, you still see LP agreements or partnership agreements which require a partner vote for everything and that's just not um, that's just not feasible when you're trying to negotiate a merger with another party. You need to have some authority given to a smaller number of people to agree things. And so have, it's always useful to have a think about that. Um, and the other thing I would say about con constitutional provisions is um, it, you know, for, uh, most, most law firm and other professional firm mergers tend to be balance sheet mergers, so there doesn't tend to be any consideration that moves between the parties as a result of that merger. But we're increasingly seeing um, for some firms going out to acquire other firms, smaller firms, um, and paying money, good money for it. And partly that's because, you know, we've, we've now got listed firms, we've now got firms that are private equity backed and have cash to pay. And, um, and there are consolidators out there who are acquiring smaller firms. And quite often we see in LLP agreements, there's no provision in, in the agreement as to how any capital profits might be shared between the partners. So that's always worth having a think about in advance because if you suddenly, suddenly made an offer of, um, uh, of an acquisition of your business for a good sum of money, uh, how you share that money can become quite a, um, uh, a disputed issue between the partners. So if you've thought about that in advance, that's quite helpful. In terms of other planning um, on due diligence issues, I would say that um, with any merger, uh, the other side will be do, doing due diligence on your business. So it, in order to prepare prepare yourself for that, it might be worth doing some reverse due diligence on yourself. Um, so thinking about the key issues that, for, um, you know, that are usually highlighted in due diligence. So things about existing disputes, especially partner disputes that might be ongoing and might be worth you know, considerable sums of money. Um, PI insurance, claims histories, um, whether uh, you know your PI insurance is in, inordinately high and whether you can bring that down. Annuities and pensions tend to be another big sticking point as well um, and whether you can do anything about that in advance because a potential merger partner looking at your firm which has significant annuity liabilities um, may not be uh, attracted by that. Um, and, and the other things are again financial so around long expensive leases um, uh, expensive borrowing. Um, you often see mergers happening just as a lease um, to, is around um, renewal date, um, which seems to be quite um, common thing to happen. Um, in I mean, moving on to that, uh, connected with those due diligence points is really what the potential deal breakers tend to be in mergers. Um, so Rob, what do you tend to see as being the, the big sticking points when it comes to merger discussions and um, how, how, do, how can firms navigate that 
successfully without breaking breaking the merger? Well, conflicts are probably the biggest. Uh, if, if you're going to lose some of your key, most important, dearest, most loved clients because of the merger, then that's, that's, that makes it unappealing. Uh, the differences, um, what, what it, it really comes down to people and, and how far the people, the partners are prepared to go <clears throat> to, to solve these stumbling blocks. Because it's interesting if one looks at, and, and I looked at, uh, just to talk a little bit about the sample of the of mergers I studied, uh, we, we looked at all the big US and, Amer uh, and UK mergers over the past 20 years. Uh, and then we winnowed that down to those on which there was enough data, looking at the legacy firms before and for a couple of years afterwards. Uh, so uh, the studies end of 2017. Um, and we got down to about 60, and there's a, a, quite a range uh, of, of, um, of levels of profitability, and some of the firms that merged uh, were, were quite different to each other, uh, but then they used the Rhine structures. They used the, the, these, the, this way of, of delaying difficult decisions. Uh, assuming that one can't do that, and it's very unusual to have a, a structure like that in a domestic merger, then the, the level of profitability becomes a, 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 a stumbling block. And I also just want to take a, a point that Sarah raised around secrecy. Uh, most merger discussions never come to anything, uh, and and firms are in merger discussions of one sort or another frequently. We're with all sorts of firms, and so I think one of the things one has to do is prepare for the stumbling block that arises when you get that phone call from a reporter saying, "Would you like to comment on your merger discussions with X, Y, Z?" And and I I think that um, you have to assume that that will happen. And, and, and it does make things a little bit more difficult because then the, the media all comment and they uh, pronounce strategies that they think would be sensible. But you can't lose sight of what it is that you're trying to achieve. And uh, it's probably best to, to have a, a standard statement along the lines of, well, we, we've, uh, it's very common to be talking to other firms. We do it all the time and we can't possibly just dis uh, discuss this particular issue. Uh, whether it e even exists or not, we're, we're not prepared to, to disclose so, and, and, and just politely fob them off that way. Um, and remuneration structures, again, it's, it, it, it's very difficult to, 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 to bang together a pure lockstep and a need what you kill system because the cultures and the behaviors around those two systems are so different. So it's not so much that the, the compensation systems are radically different per se, it's that the way that the partners in, in, in such partnerships behave is difficult, uh, uh, difficult to integrate. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think the point you made about make about culture, Rob, is I think one of the key things and it's not something that you can quantify particularly. Um, so Helen, Ned, it'd be quite interesting to hear about your experiences of putting your two firm cultures together and how that, how that worked for you. Our culture was, you know, everyone said to me along the way <clears throat> when we were in discussions, it's all about culture. If the culture isn't right, it, it'll fail. Um, and I heard that so many times uh, to the extent that I actually did listen. Um, and I think for a start, we, I think the two teams that held the negotiations were put together reasonably carefully in that uh, I know that the last decade in Moore Blatch, a, a very financial orientated team had been put forward for our merger discussions. And I wouldn't say, I mean, all these people are now retired, that they were um, what I would describe as people 
people people um they and and i don't think it's coincidence that their merger discussions broke down every single time they broke down because they're extremely uh, financially orientated whereas helen and i put our joint purpose and our joint vision on the table on day one and every single meeting i'd bring the the, the parties back to you know, everyone is telling me that culture is important. Why haven't we talked about culture in this meeting? Why haven't we, why haven't we talked about our joint vision and purpose? And, and, and for the next meeting, we will schedule an hour for that. Because all the people who know about these things are telling me that culture is the most important thing. Uh, and we have to listen to these experts. Um, and for that reason, we were secret for a very short period. We engaged our partnerships very early on. Uh, we had a series of gateways which invited them to vote on whether they wanted to go to the next gateway. And um, we used a, a joint vision to sell a, a better future, a more confident future where we had a larger market share. And that, and, and we, what we put it to be partners, it was sort of as an individual, as you as an individual, you as a department leader and you as an investor in your firm those are the three lenses upon which you need to make your mind up and we we got to unanimous um at all gateways so uh just hopefully give give that flavor of culturally uh how how we approached it we took, we took that side of it extremely yeah. seriously uh, and personally, I'm very driven by purpose, and both firms had a, a deeply people purpose uh, to our overall client and uh, employer propositions. Because there are, you know, no denying it, there are some very, very difficult stumbling blocks to get over in any merger negotiation, I'm sure, and we, we were not an exception to that. Um, but what we both tried to do was to call upon, uh, I suppose, hearts and minds, getting hearts and minds on board and saying, OK, so we may have to compromise on this thing, but it's worth it because of the bigger goal. And making sure that at every gateway, we had that discussion with all the relevant people in both firms. So that, that was extremely important to both of us. Um, and that got us through some some tricky times, didn't it, Ed? Uh, undoubtedly. Yeah, absolutely. And still getting us through some tricky times. Well, exactly. And and I suppose the proof of the pudding is that um, the the merger negotiation team we knew were going to be, if this were a successful uh, outcome, would be part of the group that was running the firm, as indeed we are. And uh, there were key people in both firms that would be working together within one firm when, once we'd merged. So we tried to make sure those discussions were going on as far as possible as the merger negotiations continued. Um, and as I say, we're now nearly a quarter into the new firm. And I, I think I can confidently say that people relationships has not been a problem in the new firm. Um, it, it, that has gone very, very well. And hopefully we'll, we'll continue to work in our favour to get us past any, any further trickinesses that emerge. Well, it's really interesting to hear about. And um, it seems like you've got, you've got the key ing ingredient there 
nailed down um, around culture and people because um, I, I find that, that that is the key uh, unless that's right um, you know mer often merged firms can't be successful because they just don't get, get along with each other as people um, and culturally they're very, very different Mm. Yeah, I mean, there, there are just so many, as, as Rob has alluded to, so many difficulties and complexities bringing two completely separate organisations into one. And it, what we found is it's, it's incredible how you get drawn into the detail. And um, I can see how people get so drawn into the detail that they forget about that just elementary... Um, sort of paramount factor that the people have got to just get on um it's just and, and have a joint vision but there's unfortunately there's just so much to talk about and agree that that you can just see how how easily people get into the weeds and then probably just fall out well it, it seems like both Hal and ed were really successful in getting that partner buy-in and getting those um you know getting the merger over the line but um, it can be that can be one of the most trickiest aspects of um, getting a merger deal through. Sarah, do you want to comment on um, how uh, senior management can manage the you know manage that process and mitigate the risks of not getting partner approval? Well, I think it, it, the starting point is you know what what does partner approval look like? Do you need a hundred percent of a yes? I mean, it's great that. Um, Helen and Ed got to uh, unanimous, um, you mentioned Ed, but actually not every merger necessarily will need that. Now that doesn't mean that that's the answer, it doesn't mean you're going to force it through, but you know the question is do you need unanimity or not? So I think there's, that's one thing to consider. Um, but you know what your probably worst case scenario is that you don't necessarily need unanimity uh, from a technical perspective, but that actually you want it or there's a particular partner or group of partners who you really need their buy-in and you really need them to be on board because they are still crucial to the merger from a commercial perspective. And if you don't have those people, um, then you might be in difficulty. And, and typically, it might not be that uncommon to, to face this issue, because unless those people are the ones who are really buying into the merger, and the people that might be most threatening to sort of leave or uh, stop the merger may very, very likely be the same group of partners or partner who have quite a lot of commercial clout in the business, because they will feel empowered to sort of put their foot down um, and they're probably the very same people that you don't want walking away because they're probably one of the reasons that you are attractive as a potential merger partner so it is a really difficult situation and um, so i mean i suppose it does start at well what powers do you have and what powers do you not have but really looking at your powers in the llp agreement i don't think is the answer here because i don't think just forcing through a merger because you can is necessarily going to end up with a successful merger um, and I equally don't think threatening it is necessarily going to win the buy-in of those um, partners. So it's about thinking about what other things you can do to get those people on board. You know, do they need certain terms negotiated into the new LLP agreement or the merger agreement? You know, are there things that safety nets and um, things that you can build into the to the deal that help those people to feel supported and to feel that their interests are being looked after as well and that they are not just being neglected so i think thinking around things like that and then also thinking about incentivization if there are any financial incentives that can be um given but also i think when you if you think about those sorts of things think also about 
the timing of any payouts, whether that's financial incentives or whether that's just if there is money being gained for the effective sale of the business if it's an acquisition by another firm, then think about the timing of that because there's a huge risk in just allowing people to kind of run off into the sunset with their cash. And they may then have no um, will and interest to actually keep working in the business and keep investing their time. And um, you know, they've obviously got clients in the business, that's a value to the business and to the merged business. So I think you've got to be really careful about incentivization, but nevertheless, it's not something that shouldn't be considered. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very difficult. And this will be why, you know, as we've discussed, so many mergers fall apart, because if you can't get buy-in of of a critical group of partners or department or person and they are needed to make that merger successful then it's very difficult even if you can force it through because it's not going to solve your problems. Thanks Sarah. Um, it, it seems very apparent that leadership is the key to this um, and Helen Ed when we spoke a few weeks ago you mentioned the kind of personal toll it takes to manage through this transformational change to your business and bring two groups and two businesses together. Um, can you give any practical tips as to how to manage that effectively um, when you're leading a firm through such, you know, such change as a merger? And yeah, well, uh, also, would you have done anything differently? Looking I don't back know about that. that, but something that resonated um, with what Sarah just said just now with me was I've, you know, it's remembering that with our merger negotiation group, which consisted of a key forum of people from both firms, we very much tried to deal with every hiccup, with every problem, with every individual partner or group of partners' major concerns as a collective. So we would literally come to the table and say, right, I've been approached by this group of partners in my firm and their issue is this how are we going to solve that how are we going to come up with something that's going to bring them back on board again it, so it wasn't it wasn't an adv adversarial approach it wasn't sort of me for example having been approached by those partners then coming to the negotiation table and sort of banging on the table and saying you must you know you must give me this um and it, is, it may be a slight nuance but it it really helped um, and looking back on it, I think I, I, I perhaps underestimated at the time just how important that was, that approach. Yeah, and, I, and I, from my point of view, I, I think, again, it just comes back to having a really shared, deep understanding of why you're coming together and leading on that why. Um, and if you've got, you only need really two people on that that are very strong and have formed an axis of trust between each other and are speaking a very similar language in each firm. Um, and that's leadership, isn't it? It's, 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 it's um, a confidence that then uh, flows into the business through, through the, the two leaders that are that believe in the why and then carry other people. And it's got to be a visionary leadership if you've got two operationally minded people who regard their own organizations to be brilliant and superior, they, they won't be able to work together because they're so obsessed with their own brilliance. So you, you've got to find leaders who are, who are visionary rather than um, 
operational to be the absolute leaders and then they'll need to be supported by the the the, the operational brilliance that, that will be able to bring those two together thanks Ed. so we've talked about partner buy-in inevitably obviously this didn't happen with more Barlow um, because you've managed to get unanimous consent but inevitably uh, in my experience certainly on, on advising on mergers there will be there will be some partners who don't agree um, so then the firm ha has to deal with um, you know the issues around those partners um, what they do with them whether they, whether they do go ahead and become part of the newly merged firm or are they exited um, so Sarah how, how how would you advise firms to best deal with those kind of dissenting partners who who are intractably against uh, the merger? I think what I mentioned before in that, you know, I think you've got to decide, first of all, if they're critical to the firm, to its success as a merged firm or as a non-merged firm. I suppose you have to think about the possibility as well that this merger might not go ahead and if you do something to sever your relationship with those partners too early and then the merger falls through and you've also lost some of your really key people then you could be in difficulty so I think thinking through the commercial risks to that is really important and um, if however you get to the point where you've decided well these people are absolutely holding up the merger we need to exit them for example as you mentioned Zulon that you need to think about whether or not you've got the power to do that um, and typically an LLP agreement um, will give you the power to exit partners but sometimes that can be quite difficult sometimes you will need to have a reason for doing so sometimes that reason has to meet some sort of misconduct type threshold um, or it could just be that uh, the member is not acting in the best interest of the firm and it may be that you could satisfy that test that not acting in the best interest of the firm test um, if they are holding up a merger that can in itself quite be quite difficult because that's going to probably be quite a subjective um, viewpoint. So it may be difficult, it may be that you didn't, don't necessarily have the power to exit that person. And if you don't have the power to exit that person, then you may be able to exit that person. Often a partner who doesn't want to come along with a merger will of themselves want to leave anyway, but it may cost you um, and there may be a price to pay for that. And that's not necessarily just a financial price to pay because they might want some release of things like restricted covenants and um, other obligations that they might have. And if you are down the route of potentially exiting a partner, then that you have to bear in mind that all the normal law in relation to that applies. So, you know, making sure that the reason that you're exiting that partner isn't because they are the oldest partner, for example, and that, you know, they've been identified as someone who's just not on board with the the new vision for the firm because that could be age discrimination but also then ensuring that you go through a proper process to exit any partners so uh, whether there's a written process in your LLP document or associated governance documents you would need to follow that in the absence of any set out written process then you need to just make sure that you're following general fairness principles so that would tend to be that you give the partner an opportunity to have some input into the reason for their um, exit um, and then you make clear to them why you're thinking about exiting them um, before you actually take that decision so that it complies with the general fairness principles. Um, and then obviously you just need to comply with LLP agreements where any motions that need to be passed need to be done properly and in accordance with the rules so that they are effective and avoiding the situation where you have a potential partner exit that you think you've completed successfully, but that actually is void and therefore of no effect because you failed to complete part of the process properly. Um, but I, I mean, I, I think we talk about that and obviously 
all very well to sort of set out the, the legal requirements for a partner exit, but I think that does have to be sort of a last resort in this sort of situation. It's a pretty drastic move to take. Um, and much better if you can think of more creative and commercial ways to get that partner on board or to get them to exit um, themselves or by agreement rather than having to force it through. Um, it would be pretty unusual that you'd have to force through that sort of exit in these circumstances. What I find useful is um, as part of the um, kind of housekeeping constitutional review that firms might do in advance of the merger, that they might think about including a provision in their LLP agreement to say that if a partner votes against and doesn't agree to a merger that is actually passed by the requisite majority, then they will be treated as having served notice of retirement or they can be exited because that, that gives the firm uh, an automatic right to, to kind of exit that partner if needed. Um, so that, that can be quite helpful. Um, in terms of um, engagement as well, generally, um, Helen, you mentioned earlier that uh, as part of your strategy, you let for people across the firm know that you were looking for a merger. But as part of this merger process, how did you go about engaging not just the partners, but also other staff and PLs in the business? Obviously, law firms and other profession, professional services firms are all people businesses. It's all about people. We're not, we don't sell widgets, we sell the expertise of our people. Um, and it's, you know, key to making a merger successful is retaining those really talented people that make our business successful. Um, how, so how did you go about engaging um, your people during the merger process? Well, Looking back on it, uh, I, I, I'm sure I shall chortle about this uh, for many, many years to come. But um, we had decided that as soon as we exchanged um, the business transfer agreement, um, we would do a double act, Ed, Ed and I, and do multiple roadshows at each of the offices of the to-be-merged firm. Um, so in person, each of us would introduce the other to everybody and say, right, this is what we're going to do. And here is the embodiment of the merger partner firm um, and, and, and allow questions to be asked and all sorts of things. Um, the reason I say I'll chortle about it for the rest of my life, I suspect, was that actually that happened literally just a few days before the country went into lockdown. So Ed and I were hurtling around the country, appearing in person in front of crowds of people and uh, madly washing our hands afterwards. <laughs> and it was it, bonkers, really. We are so glad we did that, though. So glad we did that. Um, and so our people, our staff were told before we told the outside world. And then we had these roadshows very, very quickly. Um, which I think did excite them rather than scare them um, about the whole prospect of merger. Ed, do you um, want to comment on that as well? Yeah, just to build on that, what, what I think really helped is we had finished the branding. Hmm. So we, we unveiled a new logo and a new website. And it sounds sort of trivial, but actually um, to be given a, a sneak, sneak preview of a, a good 
new logo and a good new website and some good new copy, um, I think <clears throat> made made staff feel like they'd at least seen very important things first, and and um, I got got them excited because the 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 new brand is better than the two legacy brands, which which helped a lot in the, in those roadshows. But we also, we had all sorts of questions from the floor. And in yeah. retrospect, I'm so glad we, were, we had the opportunity to answer them because some of them were quite left field. But if you realise that there was a group of people at one office who were thinking that way, it was good to nip it in the bud because it usually wasn't true. Um, so we were able to reassure. Um, and there were all sorts of questions dealing with all sorts of things that were pertinent and relevant to those individuals who might otherwise have been quite worried about it, like were we intending to completely pull out of a sector of the market? And we were able to immediately say, no, we weren't, absolutely not, and demonstrate that. Um, but the, the questions ranged from the sublime to the ridiculous. I think at one, uh, at one, one session, Ed was asked, um, you know, do you like dogs? So <laughs> <laughs> he was able to reassure that, yes, the... Uh, yes. I think the answer was yes yet. People at More Blatch <laughs> like dogs. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I was also asked, does More Blatch go in for fancy dress at the yes. annual party? And um, the answer was yes. And luckily, Bardo Robbins like fancy dress as well. And that those are the sort of questions that seem to relax everyone. They could just see we're all just human beings trying our best um, and happy to answer people's questions and meet them in person. Um, great. Um, Pia, we haven't managed to get to you yet, um, so it'd be great, great to have your views on um, kind of the legal issues that firms should consider in re relation to their employees when they're merging. Yeah, so um, some of the issues have already been mentioned, so we've talked about uh, planning and clear communication and Planning is really important so that you can anticipate some of the likely issues that are going to arise and then the steps that you're going to take. So thinking about things like cheaply, will it apply? Uh, will uh, redundancies be needed? Um, what are the information and consultation requirements that might be triggered? So you know, if cheaply does apply, um, you know, do you have a, an elected representative body with a remit to be consulted or will you have to elect representatives and in your planning, it, you know, you'll need to put together a sort of timetable. Uh, thinking about, you know, the policies, are you going to have new ones? Are you going to adopt another firm's policies? What are the changes? What is, what's the impact uh, going to be on, on, on those employees? Are there going to be any changes to terms and conditions of employment? So remembering that unless there is an economic, technical or organisational reason entailing changes in the workforce, that any changes will be void. So thinking about how you're, you're going to manage this. Now, uh, Helen mentioned that very early on, they talked to employees and about, about the merger, but there might be sometimes that firms might want to keep it secret and only inform employees at the last minute. So if there are information and consultation issues you know how are you going to approach those legal risks and taking calculated risks to manage that uh, likewise you know with with redundancy so are you going to you know do you have a team of 
10 people and after the merger you're going to have 20 but actually there's only work for 15 so how how are you going to manage that particularly if there are a collective consultation issues remembering that you know if if cheapy applies at any dismissals it will be automatically unfair if the solar principal reason for the dismissal is is the transfer thanks dear um so just moving on to the our last topic um obviously you know it's always it's all well to prepare then execute a merger successfully but it can only really be successful if you have successful integration um going forward so rob could you um give us a kind of a high the highlights of things that firms should be doing thinking about doing in terms of ensuring successful integration and um, merge performance I think a lot of the points have been raised already, particularly by, by Ed and Helen. Um, and, and it goes back to, to having a very clear view of the why, the, so the overarching strategy, and, and picking somebody with whom, a, a, a firm with whom you can get the integration done with the structural and the social and the cultural uh, dif differences are not such that it it becomes impossible to integrate the businesses. But then the third, and, and, and there are three aspects, and you need all three, uh, it fails without, if one, of, if one or more is, aren't there, is, is the managerial capability to drive that integration. Uh, because what's often missed is that if, if, if it's two large-ish organizations coming together and creating a combined firm that is potentially twice the size of, the, of either of the antecedent firms. Uh, that's a very different business. It's a different competitor set that you're competing with. And it's not just at the time of the merger that you need to look. You're on a trajectory into the future. Uh, and, and so the, 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 how you're going to create competitive advantage relative to these new competitors that you're competing with in the markets and how, you, uh, how you're going to create a value proposition that clients perceive as better than more than just well same as before only bigger uh, and uh, how are you going to make the complexity of the business itself increases uh, the, the the systems the the structures the way it's governed uh, the the interpersonal relationships uh, so I, I think that it, uh, the, the the most crucial thing uh, in that first two years post merger is communicate 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 and 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 through the process as well um, and, and we've heard that from, from Helen and Ed as well, how, how they did that. And open, make it safe for difficult conversations to happen. When I'm talking about communication, I don't just mean top down. I mean amongst all the partners as well. So as, as many opportunities as possible to put the, the partners together. I guess you're having lots of Zoom meetings now, given that you can't have off-site retreats. But uh, at, at getting people to talk uh, most of the 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 the, the gritty uh, post merger issues that come up uh, get sorted out with with such conversations, um, and, and then of course I mean we we could talk about the the, the technical aspects of 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 combining systems and such like, but but that, that's probably it's not less important, but it's easier to deal with. In terms of um, the other things to um, think about. Uh, Obviously, in to kind of ensure successful integration, you need to be able to retain your key people going forward. Yeah. You often see lots of um, teams and people moving um, or leaving the firm soon after a merger because they think they think it's not working out. 
Um, and I think Sarah touched on this earlier about um, working things into your merger agreement or your LLP, new merge firm LLP agreement that enables you to keep people as long as possible. Obviously, you can't force anybody to stay, but you know, things like good, bad leave of provisions in your LLP agreement or your merger agreement can be quite, quite crucial um, in ensuring people stay. Um, so typically, particularly if you have consideration involved, um, often you see part of that consideration being deferred over a period of time after, after the merger. So that people only get it over a two or three year period. And that can encourage people to stay, particularly during that crucial two or three year period after the merger to enable that merger to bed down. Um, other kind of good, if you don't have consideration involved, um, you can have good lever, good bad lever provisions where um, an exiting partner's capital and other reserves is deferred for an extended period of time if they're a bad lever. So if they, if they leave to go to a competitor, for example, um, and of course, restrictive covenants, Sarah's mentioned earlier before, are absolutely crucial and um, provisions like uh, appropriate notice periods, garden leave, um, a waiting lounge provision that prevents um, more than a certain number of partners resigning in a certain period can again help to stem a mass exodus of partners at some point if, if, if they if they see that things aren't working out and they want to seek greener pastures. So th those are all things to think about in terms of having the constitutional mechanisms in place to put the firm in the strongest position possible during that very crucial two, three year period after a merger. Uh, can, can I just uh, take that an inch deeper? And, and for th thinking from the perspective of a partner who's wanting to leave because they're not a dissenting partner, uh, it is much better almost always for that partner to join the new firm, to try it for a while, see if it works, and then leave. The market will not look at that person any less uh, than, uh, than if they left before. In fact, they'd probably uh, be, be, be more, uh, it, 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 there's a more compelling message to give to the next firm. Now, it wasn't just a, well, I didn't like what my partners decided, so I left. The only exception is if that partner has a client that is going to be lost because of a conflict. Uh, that's a very common reason. Or if it's a partner that the firm wants to separate out, uh, that, that's a different matter too. But yeah. assuming it's somebody that you want to keep, there's a very compelling argument to say, stick with us, see how it goes. You know, if, if you want to leave in two years time, because it's really not a good fit, uh, you know, you, you'll, you can do that with our blessing. Yeah. And that complex issue is quite key, isn't it? So firms quite uh, have to make that decision as to which which client they want to keep on and which clients they may, may have to let go. Um, Helen and Ned, um, I know it's still early days. You're only into the first quarter, just past the first quarter after the merger. How, how is it, how's the integration going? Do you have a, uh, say, 100-day plan or a two-year plan? Um, and how are you progressing? I, I imagine that lockdown doesn't help, does it? I was going to say any plan we have had got thrown away. Um, I think we like like all firms, um, you know, lockdown has just been seismic, has changed the way we do absolutely everything. Um, in terms of integration of the two firms, it's kind of been as helpful though as it has been an obstacle because uh, when you think that we were two firms in, in different geographical localities and we had no intention whatsoever to pull out of any of those geographies, um, 
So we were not intending to move teams between offices or anything like that particularly. So in a way, uh, the fact that everyone's had to get to know each other on Zoom has probably been slightly easier than it might have been otherwise. And may maybe they've been meeting more often and having sociable chats more often than they might have done if we, if we were trying to do it all in person. Um, so it's very difficult to answer your question because I think COVID is the much bigger issue for us, yeah. um, really, than, than post-merger integration. Yeah, uh, we're getting on with all the things that you'd expect us to be getting on with um, that Pia and Sarah have outlined. All of those things like career structure integration and um, reward mechanism integration. And uh, there's just a list as long as you're on. To, the, um, the, the, the learning that, that I've taken from that, from integration, is that another thing somebody said to me, not from inside law, um, said, you, you can't, you're a lawyer, you can't run an integration. You don't know what you're doing. None of you know what you're doing. Um, so we hired a program manager with um, who spent his whole career in uh, managing transformations. And he, um, he he's, it's an interim um, contract, but we keep extending it because he's just so good. And he's taught us how to run a program of projects. So the ones Helen's just alluded to, you know, harmonization of terms, reward. That's just one tiny project in a, an entire program uh, that starts with where we want to get to in two years time uh, and has, um, you know, uh, schedules of milestones. And, you know, this, this is an area where, frankly, we, you know, we, we, we just don't know what we're doing. Um, so we've, we've brought in an expert. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's key, isn't it, as well, bringing in relevant relevant expertise. Of, we're all, especially in law firms, we're all lawyers. We don't know how to, mm. you know, we don't necessarily know about project management and, um, you know, marketing or, or integration of a business. Um, so it's quite key to bring in it, relevant expertise. I mean, somebody's asked a question about value creation, and one of the things that I've been astounded at is the... Um, caliber of candidates that are putting themselves forward for our senior leadership positions is just exponentially better than each individual firm would have been able to attract before so chief people officer chief marketing officer you go from you know one level to the next level and just in terms of your attraction to them as somewhere to work because they like the fact that we've got a blank canvas they like the fact that they'll make a huge impact when they arrive um, and that that I hadn't really anticipated but I can see creating value just by having basically better more experienced people in, the, in those uh, functions. Great so we, we've had a few questions as one that um, Ed just kind of alluded to um, the other question from that same um, person was how, how do you make mergers a core competence so that the last murder is not a one-off. Um, maybe Rob, you could you have a comment on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, and if one looks at the the very large firms, so the comment that Adrian makes there, there, there that you can go from a, a five million uh, up to a one billion firm in fifteen years, and 
good luck. And Allsop is a good example of that. Uh, now DLA Piper and, and Dentons as well. Um, and and uh, some of those firms have become serial mergers and, and uh, they have a team within the firm whose speciality is doing exactly what, what, what Ed's just talked about. They're driving the programs involved in mergers. Uh, there, there are other firms which have become serial mergers and then um, uh, spectac spectacularly crashed. Uh, Bingham is a good example of one um, where they, they merged, merged, merged. I think they did over 10 mergers within the space of a decade and, and, and then they, they went bankrupt and uh, the, the, the business was acquired by Morgan Lewis. Um, but but so, so just be, being a serial merger does not necessarily mean that you get better at it. You need to build in the structures that are, are focused on, okay, so this is the way we're going to tackle the next merger. Thank you. Um, and then we had another question uh, about um, people engagement um, and how you plan to keep up the level of engagement going forward. I was going to ask Pia a question around how uh, employees and um, how do you keep them how do you keep them engaged and how do you retain them? Obviously, they're the future of the firm. Um, we were talking about succession earlier, um, keeping our key uh, talented associates um, engaged and um, retained in the firm is quite crucial to ensure the future success of the business. Um, Pia, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, it was quite interesting hearing from Helen about the communication. Um, and I think that's really important to retain people because obviously, um, you want to stop the spread of rumours and reassure people. So, you know, people might be worried about career progression. So is there a bigger pool now to, of people to compete with? In terms of the culture, you know, they might be worried about, you know, how are things like performance issues going to be managed going forward? So I think it's important to give clear messaging to stop rumours and stop an uncertainty that might then lead to people wanting to leave. Uh, because you know they're worried about where their place is going to be in this sort of future merged uh, firm. Thanks, um, Pierre. There was one last question on um, partners who might be who might not not be on board with a merger. Um, is there any way we could uh, coach them individually to help them um, change their minds about the merger at all? Is that something that um, Sarah you've seen? happen or would you is that something you would recommend i imagine helen and ed didn't have to deal with that those issues since you had unanimous uh, approval um i think it's fair to say that the route to unanimity involved quite a few <clears throat> well a lot of time uh, i i think if anyone uh, um who's attending this zoominar is sort of going through the early processes of merger negotiations at the moment then my heart goes out to you because the time involved is enormous um, and I think that with any negotiation, there is compromise, there is, there is give and take. And I think sometimes that translates into give and take for the individual as well. So there might be a partner who, who is deeply unhappy about something. Um, and it may be that you have to have, spend time with that individual and work out what might possibly be given to that person so that they've, they've got something in exchange. And those kind of mini deals have to be done right across the piste um, to keep everyone on board. Um, and it is very, very time consuming. I think something like coaching is sometimes a really good idea, uh, not actually just in a time of mergers, but actually 
other times too. Um, and I think um, identifying uh, through ongoing partner performance management where partners might need particular help, co whether that's coaching or support or any other sort of help is really good tactic anyway. But I think, yeah, some sort of individual coaching, because a lot of the hesitancy around this comes from perhaps a place of concern about what the future looks like for that person and for that person's own career. And I think if you can help that person to think through those issues and try and address them, then you can potentially get to a point where you'll get their buy-in. Thanks, Sarah. Um, we've reached our allotted time, um, but I just wanted to end with just one final, very quick question um, with you know one sentence answers is if, if possible from the panelists um, what one piece of key advice would you give to our audience um, to take away with them if they're thinking about merging um, in order for them to, to in order to help them kind of successfully navigate that merger um, I'll start with uh, Helen <laughs> um, look after yourself actually I think as a leader you have got to look after yourself. It's so easy to um, be run ragged and get very emotionally bogged down in the stresses of it. And sometimes you literally just have to go out for a walk and calm your head down. Um, Ed and I were incredibly fortunate in that we formed a friendship, I would say, fairly early on. And there were times when things had got to a very difficult pass. And we would sort it out by a phone call because usually it was based on misunderstandings. Um, but you just have to remember you're, you're human. That's a very good piece of advice. Um, Sarah? Um, I'm probably going to copy what a lot of other people might think, but planning. Um, and I say that in respect of a number of different things. So, you know, really advanced planning, you know, so that you've got your succession issues ironed out. So you've got any bigger issues ironed out. Uh, medium term planning so you know you you're thinking about a merger and actually then you can get your governance documentation all all in in line and in place and then you know planning at the time that involves you know thinking through all the potential issues that might come up making decisions as to whether or not you value your confidentiality as we discussed over and above your buy-in from the, the entire group or vice versa um, and each of these things will be individual decisions for individual firms and different things will work best for, for different people and different businesses but planning it all out and kind of knowing what's coming and thinking about the problems that you might come across and how you can best protect against them happening in the first place is certainly going to put you in a much better position. Thanks Sarah. Um, Rob any final thoughts? Yeah, uh, I, I think the, the relationship between the two leaders is, is absolutely crucial. And again, this is something that you've heard from, from Helen and Ed, and, and investing in building that relationship so that you can just get on a, on a call and, and clear things up. Uh, you know, the, 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 yes, we are bringing together two businesses, but ultimately we're bringing together two groups of people. And, and those people need to, the, 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 the lead, if, the, if the leaders of that process aren't getting on or aren't communicating absolutely honestly, brutally honestly sometimes and completely openly, then, then how, how will the rest? Yeah, it seems like Ed and Helen got it nailed down. <laughs> um, Pia, any, your final thoughts? I think just clear communication and it feeds into what Sarah mentioned. I think anticipating some of the issues that employees are going to be concerned about and and, and managing the message that, that, that you want to send out to employees, uh, particularly to, to reassure them. Thanks, Mia. Um, and finally, Ed. 
Thank you for giving me the most time to think about that. Um, <laughs> I, I think I've concluded that the, my advice would be don't do it because it's incredibly hard unless you really feel you absolutely believe in, in why you're doing it. And you've managed to persuade people who you think are very good, who will become very good advocates of the reasons and almost tested on a few people outside or, you know, it, it's got to be, the reasons have got to be compelling because it is very hard. Yeah, I, feel yeah. like, I feel like we've been painting a, a slightly too positive picture, Helen and I, but, um, you know, it's probably because we've, we've done it and, it and actually I think it's going to work and it feels good. But my goodness me, it's hard. It's time consuming um, and it's all worth it if you and others in both sides completely believe in what you're trying to create. Because if you do, then probably staff, you, you'll be able to send those clear messages that Sarah and Pierre have, have talked about. And, um, but if you don't, you won't. I don't think you'll be able to, to send those clear messages. Thank you. Um, and that's really the end of our session. And um, apologies for going slightly over time. That seems to be my MO at the moment, as chair always go over time. So apologies for that. Um, thank you to all of our audience for attending. Um, it's really good to have you with us. And obviously, thank you to our panellists for being such great speakers and sharing your really valuable insights. Uh, I think it's been a really interesting session. I hope to see everyone very soon at our next Zoominar. Um, so thank you again for joining us.